You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hi there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. If my numbers are correct, I believe this is going to be episode 160. So if this is the first time you've listened, uh, you got a back catalog to check into. So I, I would appreciate that. We're on all your I- iTunes and all those kinds of catchers. So uh, give us a shot and listen to some of the older episodes as well. I am an assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. And today I get to actually talk about something that's closely related to my field uh, for once, actually. And so this is going to be very exciting for me. Um, it is a book called uh, The Gospel in Dickens. And I am speaking to the editor of this book, uh, Gina Delfonso. And uh, Gina, how are you today? Doing great. Thank you. Oh, thanks for joining me. Um, I want to uh, get into your uh, biography here in a little sec in a second. But first, I'd like to thank um, Plow Publishing for um, setting this up. They uh, are nice enough to send me books every now and then um, and uh, and set up the interview here with you. And uh, I'd like to uh, take this opportunity. If you don't subscribe to Plow Quarterly, um, as I do, then I think you should. It's a, it's a great publication and they do a lot of great work. And they're not even paying me to say this stuff. I, I pay for my subscription. So um uh, they do send me nice books every now and then, though, so that's uh, that's what I get back. So, um, but I'm a big fan of, of what they do, and this book is no exception. Um, Gina is the editor of the popular Dickens blog, covering all things Charles Dickens. The author of Dorothy and Jack: The Transforming Friendship of Dorothy L. Sayers and C.S. Lewis, and One by One: Welcoming the Singles in Your Church. She has been an editor at Breakpoint and Christianity Today, and a columnist at Christ and Pop Culture. Her writings appeared in the Atlantic, National Review, the Gospel Coalition, First Things, and Guideposts. And I'm really, really pleased to uh, to have her here with me today. Um, how are you doing this evening? Doing really well, thank you. Glad um, to be here. Oh gosh, it's uh, it's gosh, it's my pleasure. I'm really, really excited about this. Um, so let me kind of get into the book. Um, in the Karen Swallow Prior writes the forward to this, a very lovely forward um, to this book. And one thing that she says, um, like stands out to me, uh, she talks about the challenges that Dickens offers kind of modern readers. Uh, Dickens' style is difficult for those habituated to the plain flat prose of cable news, blog toast, Twitter feeds, or Ernest Hemingway. Uh, and, uh, and yet she makes a, a good argument why he's um, good for us to read basically today, as you would expect Karen Swallow prior to do, um, based on her work. Right. Um, so I'm going to ask you why, what, what is it for you? Uh, why did you put this book out and, uh, and what are your motivations leaving the gospel stuff aside for now? We'll get to that uh, in depth later. Right. Well, to start with, um, I've been a fan of Dickens for a very long time, uh, since high school. Uh, he's one of those authors, he, he is, as you suggest, somewhat polarizing today, uh, sort of almost sort of a lover of love him or hate him author. <laughs> uh, and I fell in love with him at age 14 or so uh, in ninth grade when we read Great Expectations. And so, yes, I've been a fan ever since. I started the blog, you mentioned Dickens' blog, in I think uh, 2009. 
which was not just an opportunity for me to write about Dickens, but an opportunity for me to learn about him as well, because I, I considered myself more of a fan than an expert. And I knew there were a lot of people out there who knew more about him than I did. And I thought a blog would be a good opportunity to hear from others as well as <laughs> for me to put things out there for others to read. And, and that's how it's proved to be. I, I've, I've learned a great deal from others and who, um, who are fans and scholars and experts and uh it, it's been it's been really great so um fast forward a few years and i was aware of this plow series the gospel and great writers uh and was really impressed with what they were doing with it um it's not so much an opportunity to cast the great writers as saints, but because they weren't, they were very human with flaws and foibles, but it was more an opportunity to look at the faith that they had and how they engaged with that faith, uh, what they wrestled with, how they brought it all into their work, and just a really worthwhile project. And so as a Dickens fan, I, it eventually struck me that somebody ought to do an entry on Dickens. And uh, when I was a bit, a little bit at a loose end, looking for a job, looking for a, a new project to do, um, I got in touch with Plow and said, you know, I'd be really interested in doing this. And it was really almost, well, it was sort of providential because they said, you know, we've been looking for an author to do this. <laughs> so it seemed like it was meant to be. And I got to work on it. And uh, it was just a really, really absorbing project to work on and really interesting. And uh, yeah, and as, as you said, Karen wrote the foreword. And I was just so grateful to her for doing that. Because if you know Karen at all or know about her, you know, she has so many demands on her time. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so it was a great, great honor for me to have her do that. Yeah. And um, I have to say just the, um, the nature of the project is a really good fit for my interests. I, so truth be told, if you're, you know, if you teach English professionally, we all get cordoned off into our own little ghettos of interest, <laughs> right? You know, and so mine happens to be sort of more modern stuff and Jewish American lit and, and film and that sort of thing. And so the cost of knowing more about that stuff is that I don't get the time to, uh, <laughs> to get into things like Dickens, like I would like to. Right. And, uh, and so this is a, a real benefit for me to get these little excerpts to kind of, uh, and the context you put them in is what's really interesting. Um, and it is really kind of, um, a good fit for my kind of intellectual approach to things too, because the, in the, a lot of the topics we shall cover on this show, a lot of the things I write myself, I kind of approach cultural objects as kind of opportunities to think about faith, right? So it isn't so much that I'm, uh, uh, I'm presenting purely Christian authors um, who are like, you know, orthodoxy and, and that sort of thing, upholding the faith, but they provide, even in the way they challenge the faith, um, opportunities to kind of deepen and, uh, and expand that um, experience. And so um, I really enjoy um, that aspect of this series and your book is, is a great entry in it. And just for um, those who haven't looked at one of these yet, and there's what, six or so of them out now, five or six, um, I think so. like Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Dorothy Sayers, I think, and, uh, and some others. Um, and I believe I saw where Flannery O'Connor is coming out. And so that's a perfect example of someone with a very complicated faith, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and particularly challenging um, lately for us for she's been in the news there but um, so but the nature of these books are they're sort of like edited collections and and you write a, a, a rather comprehensive introduction 
um, sort of contextualizing this uh, uh, for the, the, the giving us the lens of looking at the gospel through Dickens's work. And then you find selections uh, and then you sort of comment and introduce those selections. Can I ask just a technical question? Like how it is, like what was the process? It seems like it must have been daunting. Any particular Dickens book would be a lot to sort of choose from, let alone all of Dickens, right? So what was your process in, in selecting that? That seems like a lot of work. Well, as I recall, I sort of came up with the structure first because I wanted not just to give instances of uh, Christian ideas and themes coming out in his work, although there, there were plenty of those to choose from, or, or Christian language or imagery or whatever, uh, but I also wanted the underlying structure to reflect uh, the Christian story. So. Um, it sort of moves from sin to uh, redemption, uh, repentance, redemption, and then to the righteous life. So uh, when I when I had that structure in my mind, a lot of things sort of fell into place. Uh, a way to to group selections and um, an idea of what selections I wanted. And so uh, yeah, that that uh, that was really. A guide for me, and and then there was just so much to to choose from. Uh, uh, it probably could have been longer than it was, but um, there are so many stories of sin and redemption in Dickens, and and sometimes it's explicitly Christian redemption. You know, he's he's not afraid to go there. He's not the sort of writer who like writes a story to send a message. You right. know, um, he he's not he's not writing to preach the gospel, but that redemptive sort of thinking, that redemption narrative is just so much a part of the way he thinks about things that it just keeps coming out over and over and over. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm glad to hear that sort of thought process because as I was reading this, it just occurred to me, gosh, that's, there's so much to choose from and, and it's got to be exciting, but also sort of daunting about what to select and, and how to how to put that in. And, I'm, and the framework really does help. And so I, I do want to kind of tackle this frame by frame uh, as we get into this. Um, one thing that you say in uh, in the introduction that really kind of struck me and it, it kind of spoke to something that kind of annoys me about contemporary culture. Um, but you, you talk about how irritated you get when people sort of willfully misunderstand or misinterpret or misrepresent um, Dickens as just writing for the word or for the beginning paid by the word, I believe, right, is, is the example that you kind of debunk in this um, in this move in this uh, book in this introduction. And, um, and so I do feel so talk a little bit about the ways in which um, Dickens is sort of mishandled um, by modern readers, even academic ones who should, who should be kinder. Um, <laughs> so. yeah. Well, a lot of it goes back to um, that quote from Karen that you referenced earlier uh, be, about Dickens' style being so different from what we're used to. Uh, I mean, the Victorians, they loved words. Yeah. <laughs> and they just like, you know, throw heaping handfuls of words out there on the page. And uh, Dickens was only one of many, Victor Hugo and, and uh, so many others who, who, who did that sort of thing. But it was very much par for the course then. Um, we are not used to that anymore. We, we like our fiction a little more uh, terse. Uh, <laughs> Hemingway has a lot to answer for, you could say. <laughs> um, but 
it's it's something that I, I mean more than just being part of his times that he lived in it was part of who he was if if, if you um you know if, if when you come to find out more about Dickens you find that he was a man of tremendous energy uh, tremendous passion uh, he did nothing by halves and so writing for him it wasn't just a matter of you know scratching down a narrative on the page I mean he lived these characters he would get up in front of the mirror and act out these characters <laughs> these stories just you know poured out of him with with all the these quirks and these these wonderful little interesting things that we remember about the characters that really stick in our minds so I think to I think to understand him, and, and you picked up on on what I said about you know getting irritated by that whole paid by the word business, and and it, it gets under my skin because it's just it's a signal that of a fundamental misunderstanding of who he was as a writer and a person. It, you you can't you can't approach Dickens with that mentality because it's just so cynical, you know. It, it's just so. Um, it's not who he was. You have to come to him with the understanding that he was just the most energetic writer who loved playing with words, loved doing things with words, and uh, was not writing just to annoy people. <laughs> but but um, this was the way he wrote, and this is this is what people expected. And he had this relationship with his readers where they just adored him, uh, readers from all classes of society. And and he greatly appreciated them. So, um, yeah, you just you just have to sort of um, approach him with the mindset that okay, this is different. This this is probably going to be hard at first, but this is going to be worthwhile in the end. It's it's just it, it's a challenge, but it's worth it. Just like just like so many challenges are worth it. And, and is that sort of reaction against anything? that demands anything of us personally, right? That, that just sort of like, I think motivates so much of the negative reaction, not just to Dickens, but to lots of folks like Dickens, right? And incidentally, um, before I lose this tr thread, you talked about him uh, being so enthusiastic that he would sort of play act in front of a mirror. Um, um, we uh, I, we'd spoke in email before this about the recent um, David Copperfield film, um, which I actually went to the theater to see once theaters opened, and um, partially because I knew no one else would be in the theater in Altoona, <laughs> Pennsylvania. And so um, and so I, it was a very safe place to watch, but it was also a wonderful movie. But there's a scene in there where um, David Copperfield, when he starts writing down his story, he's doing just that. Very, he's like in front of a mirror and, and just sort of... Um, um, being very silly and acting out the characters as he's writing them. And so um, I didn't realize that was tied to Dickens himself as a bio his own biography. So that's really interesting for me to hear. Um, but I kind of quote one thing that you say here um, in the, in the introduction, it's this kind of, uh, Oh, uh, how did you, what's the, nor, the noun I'm looking for? Um, these kinds of um, skepticisms are made by people who are finding Dickens overly wordy or just plain overwhelming, which in an age much terser than that of the verbose Victorians is not hard to understand. But it's become a, sh a sort of shorthand to dismiss altogether what he has to say, a way of accusing him of bloating what otherwise would have been much leaner, more comprehensible novels for the sto and stories for the sake of money, um, and puffing his works into monstrosities that no reasonable 21st century reader should be expected to tackle. I love the way you put that. But <laughs> it, it also reminds me, 
and this is a personal, you don't have to sort of assent to this. There's a thing on Twitter that drives me crazy on sort of academic Twitter when all the, the smart people with advanced degrees get on there and like to show off the great works of literature that they hate um, and that they think suck, right? And so that is the most annoying thing in the world, right? And so, um, and they think they're being populist, I think, by doing this, by, uh, by showing themselves to be not stuffy. And I think what they're showing themselves is to be super elite, not just uh, – uh, not just elite, right? And so um, that's a personal thing I just have to get off my chest <laughs> about the... Yeah, no, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> the wholesale rejection of something classic because of the, I think the underlying sense that it's oppressive, it's part of some oppressive culture, right? That we need to reject offhand, right? Instead of sort of taking from it the wisdom that is there. And um, and I think you've made a good point in this book that there's a lot of wisdom here in uh, in uh, Charles Dickens that we should um, appreciate. And so I I, uh, I just wanted to get that off my chest and, and thank you for writing that because that was really great. Um <laughs> Let's talk a little bit before we get into sort of the mechanics, I guess, of the book and sort of uh, some passages that you find interesting or uh, moving yourself. But um, you talk about Dickens's own faith experience as not being a particularly um, orthodox one, right? He's sort of not someone who's going to be following the letter of the law. He's more about the spirit of the of the faith, right? And so, do you want to talk a little bit about his own personal kind of religious? practices, if that's the right word? Yeah. Um, he was, you know, brought up in the Church of England, a uh, very mainstream experience there. Uh, never really left it altogether. Now, there are those who make a great deal out of his uh, interest in Unitarianism and will argue that he went all the way over there to Europe, Unitarianism. But I don't think that's quite accurate. Uh, he did have an interest. He had lots of friends in that church. He, as a very sort of, I, I want to use the term practical Christian in the sense that he was much more interested in um, the charitable aspects of Christianity uh, than he was in any uh, uh, issues of doctrine or dogma. Um so as that sort of person, he had a lot of admiration for the Unitarians he knew who were very involved in charitable work and so forth. He thought uh, probably the Church of England had a lot to learn from, from that aspect of, of what they did. But um, he never, as far as we can uh, tell from, from the research that's available, he, he never really did leave the Church of England. He... he um, he seems to have held to those basic beliefs always. I mean, he, you, you find him, you, you find him with beliefs and, and, and saying things and writing things that are much closer to mainstream Orthodox Christian doctrine than to Unitarianism. So you, you sort of have to, the proof is in the pudding, you know, you have to sort of look, look at what he was, he was actually writing and saying and thinking, but uh, he, he, um, he was never, you, you see him a lot in his books. He, he can be very hard on uh, clergymen, on Christian hypocrites, on people who say one thing and do another, who, uh, you know, can spout doctrine, but aren't interested in really living out their faith. So, so he comes out against that sort of thing quite a lot, and which 
has led some people to believe that he wasn't really into Christianity at all. But then you read what he says about the New Testament, about Jesus, uh, and and so forth, and you you see that uh, those things, those beliefs, those stories are really really special to him and important to him. Uh, his his uh, mind was actually absolutely saturated with scripture. Uh, scriptural phrases are always popping up. You know, he was a great uh, quoter of literature in general, but also of scripture, quoted it all the time, uh, used Christian imagery. Um, so you see there a mind that's just full of, of um, biblical texts and images and truths. And you can tell they meant a great deal to him. And the things that Jesus said about uh, helping the poor, about giving of yourself, uh, about uh, forgiving and loving, uh, all these things, these were, they were really at the core of his being. So um, he, he went too far sometimes, I think, in, you know, sort of loving Christ and <laughs> being against the church, but he really did have a love for Christ. I mean, that's clear. What, whatever else uh, you can you can point to to argue, well, he didn't like this, he didn't like that. You cannot deny that uh, he he uh, was he was really a great believer in and considered himself a follower of Jesus Christ. And in that way, I have to say, um, the one Victorian that I sort of am familiar with for whatever strange reason, some strange mechanisms of the universe. I have a, a, a powerful affection for Matthew Arnold. And, uh, and in that way, um, I'm reminded of him. He sort of has an, in, I mean, he sort of has a devotion to the church, right? But he has he had no appetite for doctrinal debates and that sort of, like all the, the nitty gritty of Christianity, of the practice of the institution, he had no kind of appetite for, right? He had no patience um, for lots of things. He had a Maybe this is why I like him. He has a very short attention span, and uh, and uh, and I, I relate a lot to him. But um, but uh, but I feel a similar thing. And this could be just sort of a Victorian spirit then <laughs> that we're talking about. This sort of as the uh, as the you know the as the old uh, church dominated world is sort of transitioning. I mean, people are sort of um, having different feelings about their allegiances to those kinds of institutions, right? And uh, and I think Dickens is a good example of that. Yeah. Right. But uh, it's interesting you bring that point up because you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, the Victorian world, the, the world of Victorian England was a world in transition. And it was one thing it was transitioning away from was was faith. Uh, but Dickens um, was unlike some others in that he held fast to the basic tenets of the faith. Uh, so he wasn't as he wasn't willing to go as far as some. He had um, he had Darwin's works or some of them in his library. I believe he had he had uh, read something of Darwin, so he knew what belief systems were out there. But you don't really see him moving away from the basic of the Christian faith, whatever he thought about the institutions and however much in step he was with his times on that point. Um, you, you see him holding on to, to um, scripture, to prayer, to, to uh, the simple things of the Christian faith that he loved. Yeah. And if anything, I mean, you can sort of see him 
um, taking the kind of the core of the gospel, um, you know, as, as you highlight in this book, and applying it to many of the problems, the social problems caused by these transitions of industrialization and that sort of thing. That's what that's how we think of Dickens is, is an advocate for, you know, child labor and that sort of thing, right? And, and for the poor. And, and so, yeah, in some ways you can sort of see him carrying over um, the best of that old tradition um, as a remedy to what the that transition caused, and, and so yeah, that's a that's a really interesting way to think about that. Thank you. Um, another thing that um, I think you point out in here is that he has this he he doesn't want to write kind of. Um, Oh my gosh! Like faith-based uh, moral literature, right? Um, it, there's not sort of a, a didactic lesson necessarily that he's going for. He's trying to find real characters and craft real characters um, that kind of engage with these things with their flaws intact, right? And, and, and I think that that's the thing that makes his literature rather timeless. I mean, we tend to forget simplistic um, characters over time, right? They might be popular in their time in their day, but they don't typically spent uh, span the test of time right and so um and and your book is like full of those examples is there one that comes to your mind um right now talking about the the kind of more complex ways that he represents uh, christian thought in 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 these characters well um there are so many examples uh but a great favorite of mine is uh sydney carton from a tale of two cities right. and uh i've i've uh, got him in the book of course yes <laughs> Uh, quite a bit of him, and um, he fascinates me in so many ways uh, as a hero and an anti-hero sort of at the same time. I mean, just the things that Dickens was doing with character in this in this book. It, it's kind of if you know a tale of two cities, um, it's kind of it's different from most of his works in a lot of ways. It's a French Revolution story, which he didn't tend to tackle historic topics very much. And it's more plot-driven than character-driven, which is very unusual for him. But he does have some immortal characters in it, and Sidney Carton is one of them. And his role is really complex because he plays a, a, a man who becomes a Christ figure, a, a very common trope in literature, but who also is in need of redemption himself. So there's sort of a dual, uh, <laughs> a dual redemption, a dual uh, Christ figure thing uh, going on there. And, uh, and it's explicitly Christian redemption that he seeks. Uh, you, I mean, you see it in uh, one of the passages I put in where, where, um, he, he has to um, repent and pray. And again, it's worked beautifully into the story. It's not a screech to a halt, pray the sinner's prayer. <laughs> in a moment, I mean, it, it's, it's just a, a beautifully written, uh, memorable, iconic passage. But uh, it's, it's very much needed because he's a man who, who believes he's thrown away his life, um, who's never done anything worthwhile, who's squandered everything on alcohol and just, um, you know, ha hasn't done anything important at all. And, and uh, he faces this great uh, sacrificial redemptive task that he's given to do, and he turns to God in order to do it. So, I mean, it just, I, I think it encapsulates so much of what Dickens thought and believed and knew about faith, about Christ, about guilt and sin and redemption, 
And so, I mean, that's an iconic moment right there for anybody who is interested in Dickens' fate. Yeah, and then that last scene, um, you know, one of, it's a far, far better thing I do, right? That's one of the yeah. one of the English language's most famous passages, right? And, and so yeah. that's a way in which Dickens is immortal. Um, and and it also kind of I think is a nice tie to uh, something that you don't shy away from in the introduction is his own kind of personal failings. He's not a he's not a saintly man in many ways, and, and you sort of talk a little bit about that, and and you can't help but see him working out some of his own self-awareness, I think, in characters like that. Um, do you want to, I mean, particularly, I guess, in his marriages and that sort of yes. thing, um, do you want to talk a little bit about that biographical um, complication uh, for listeners who might not know? Yeah. Well, let me start by saying that um, I was once the kind of reader who did like to shy away from all the unpleasant things, <laughs> biographical details and otherwise, and uh, just focus only on the good things and not think about the bad things at all, that sort of thing. I, I For many years, I was that kind of reader. Uh, I've come to realize that it doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, the bad things are there. You can't get away from them. They're part of who, they, who, who uh, people are. They're part of who I am. And if you, don't, if you don't face sin, then redemption doesn't mean anything. Uh, so... Um, and and the age we live in too, I think we've seen that people that people will bring out the unpleasant things whether you want to face them or not. Uh, we're we're living in a time when a lot of that is happening, and I think a lot of it comes from uh, tendencies to sweep things under the rug. And and just a great cultural reaction against that, uh, that you know, the truth will out mm -hmm. <laughs> always. So at one point or other, some way or other, it will come out. Uh, I mean, Jesus himself told us that. And uh, so so you have to face it. You have to deal with it. You have to work through it. And and what we're talking about in particular in Dickens case is uh, the, the breakup of his marriage. Um, uh, a classic midlife crisis, really, although they didn't have the term in Victorian times. He just didn't have Ferraris to buy, right? Um, so. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, but uh, he fell in love with a young woman, um, broke up. They, they didn't actually divorce, but separated from his wife, uh, who, you know, had, had, he, he had felt for some time, all indications are that he had felt for some time that they weren't ideally matched. He was, I mean, he, him being a man of huge energy as I've been talking about and and his wife Catherine um, not being as energetic not being able to keep up with him which you know you wonder if anybody could have <laughs> it been very very hard and she had had 10 children so it would have been even mm. harder uh, so yeah he, he did uh, separate from her uh, he behaved very badly um, tried to brazen it out in public and yet in private in some of his letters and some of the stories told by his family members you see him sometimes you know coming face to face with his own guilt and just being absolutely wrecked by it uh so you know that feeling was there that knowledge was there he, he even even um i think even if he had wanted to a, a man who knew scripture so well 
<laughs> could could not possibly, you know, get it out of his mind that, you know, I've done bad things. I've messed up really badly. Uh, so, yeah, he, he was guilty. He knew it. And I think possibly these things made him even more hungry, even hungrier for the, the truths of the scripture that he knew he needed as much as anybody, maybe more than some. So, uh, I, I mean, this is when, this is the late period in his life when you're getting books like A Tale of Two Cities and Great Expectations, which is a great story of guilt, sin and guilt and redemption. So, I mean, all these things were in his mind and in his heart, and um, he, he knew that he needed them. Yeah, um, and I just wanted to bring that up. I mean, I, I listeners, longtime listeners, know that I, I'm a big fan of horror. Uh, this is my time of year, and Halloween is we're recording this, and um, and um, and so one of the things, honestly, that I do enjoy about it, and I do find ways to connect my own kind of faith. Um, you know, my theology, I suppose, to watching those movies and reading those stories is the, the, the very often, I mean, you can sort of, you know, grow your faith by pondering those places where it's absent, right? And, and so the, those sort of dark places. Um, and, and so for me, that's kind of a, um, uh, been a, a way, at least I excuse to my mother why I watch horror movies, right? And so, um, but, uh, and she seems to accept that by now. But the, um, um, but in Dickens' own life, you sort of see that as well. And in the fiction that he writes, right? He writes a very kind of dark, um, like scenes of brutality, like humans being very bad to other humans, right? And in those kinds of exchanges, we're able to kind of um, look at the three aspects of the gospel that this book is sort of um, collected into these three separate sections. Um, the first is um, sin and its victims. Um, and so one thing that kind of stood out to me um, that I wanted to kind of um, hit on in the uh, introduction you write to an excerpt about Bleak House um, you talk about Dickens was particularly hard on Christians who failed up to Christ's call to care for the poor, right? Um, and this is, of course, another sort of long-standing interest of this podcast. Um, and so this is another way Dickens is actually a really good fit for uh, what we do here typically. Um, and the the scene in Bleak House that's um, very interesting that you talk about was, um, uh, well, I, I'll let you sort of discuss that. But like, you, you don't even have to talk about Bleak House, but what are some examples of that aspect of sin, of like cult, social sin in this case? Um, it's individual and social sin sort of coexisting here. Um, wh what's an example of Dickens that stands out for you? Well, they, they do abound in his works. And uh, you mentioned Bleak House, uh, the unforgettable picture of, you know, the, the orphan uh Joe, the, the little street sweeper, starving <laughs> on the, the doorstep of, you know, Christian charities while all they think about is what to do for, uh, you know, children in other countries. Uh, he he was, I, I mean, his his whole attitude of Bleak House is one that that's very interesting and complex and you can you can really dig into it. But um, I think he was using that example to make a point about ignoring the task that's right in front of us. Mm -hmm. the, the thing that God has put like right in front of our faces. Uh, whereas we tend to get up, up in the abstract and, you know, the people who are safely far away and we don't actually have to interact with them. We can just, you know, send them money and uh, that sort of thing. So it, it, it's, he makes points worth pondering there, but again, his works are full of these things. The whole the whole treatment of Oliver Twist uh, from the time that he's born uh, in the workhouse, 
it, you know, the, the way that society looks at him and treats him and just uh, so many other examples that really drive at home what Christians are supposed to do and how we're supposed to be looking at the world around us and how often we fail. Yeah. And that example you gave from Bleak House about, uh, I mean, how contemporary does that sound about uh, the modern church, an American church? very happy to send things overseas, right? But very reticent and very resistant in many ways um, and therefore helping to perpetuate some of the um, injustices right at their doorsteps, right? Um, the, the poor that's in front of them are somehow um, sinful and, and yet the poor that are away from them are somehow saintly, right? And, and so- um, interesting, yeah. Yeah. And so I think that you, you can see how Dickens's work and, and the excerpts that you provide here is a way to kind of get into that. Um, uh, I want to go over a couple, an example from sort of each of these sections, and then I'll sort of let you, um, if you want to um, talk about an example or two uh, of, that you are particularly special to you, um, <laughs> that we can sort of uh, uh, start wrapping up then. So, but the second section is about, um, uh, excuse me, repentance and grace. And you go, you make a really good point and this, I think, goes to Dickens' own uh, feelings about like loving Jesus but not being so down with everything that goes on with the church, right? Um, uh, in the, a section from Little Dorrit, um, it's called In Remembrance of Him. Uh, you write, like many other believers before and since, Dickens struggled with Old Testament depictions of God's wrath, as can, can be ex- seen in this exchange between Mrs. Clennon, who has spent her life punishing those around her in God's name for their failures, and Amy Dorrit, who clings to the example of Christ in the Gospels. Um, and I just want to read... Um, Little Dorrit's quote here, angry feelings and unforgiving deeds are no comfort and no guide to you and me. My life has been passed in this poor prison and my teaching has been very defective, but let me implore you to remember later in better days. Be guided only by the healer of the sick, the raiser of the dead, the friend of all who were afflicted and forlorn, the patient master who shed tears of compassion for our infirmaries. I mean, that's like, I mean, the word master is capitalized. I mean, that's explicitly talking about Jesus, right? And so um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's a passage that um, I really like. Uh, I think that now... Dickens did have a lot of issues with the Old Testament. He found it very hard to understand, very hard to to um, deal with. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he absolutely loved the New Testament. So this is you sort of see that um, uh, distilled here in this passage, because um, he, with the character of Mrs. Clenham, he takes someone who is very pious, uh, very righteous in her own sight. I mean, she pretends not to be, but she obviously is, who who sort of appoints herself judge and jury of everybody around her and, and uh, thinks she's meant to bring judgment. And um, Dickens may have seen that as just like, an example of Old Testament thinking is really more an example of what old of a bad Old Testament thinking, you know, of Old Testament thinking when you don't really um, understand what you're grappling with. Of course, the Old Testament is really hard for a lot of us. Uh, we, we do wrestle with it, but but he uses Mrs. Clennam to sort of show what happens when Old Testament thinking goes bad, and and Amy Dorrit, by contrast. 
um, draws her thinking uh, and her faith from the example of Jesus in the New Testament. And she shows here that the, the principles, the ideas that mean most to her are those of forgiveness and grace and compassion and uh, and these New Testament virtues that were very important to Dickens. So uh, it's sort of, it's such an interesting little passage where you see these two worldviews, these two belief systems sort of clashing directly. And there's no doubt at all about which side his sympathy is on and, and which way he wants us to go and who he wants us to root for. Because the whole book is, um, deals with, with, um, this sort of clash to an extent. It deals with um, judgmental thinking versus uh, grace yeah. and and um, and compassionate thinking and, and compassionate ways of dealing with others. So, uh, yeah, it's a passage that is is pretty short, but it says a lot. <laughs> yeah, and it really captures. I mean, this. The, the vision of repentance and grace as that section is called and it is not one of wrath and rule following and uh and boundary um main, maintenance right <laughs> this is this is one about grace and forgiveness and 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 help right and and so that's sort of the way one um gets over uh, the stain of sin, right? And so, um, and then once one has passed um, through that uh, and you're now living the righteous life, we get to the third section and we've already sort of talked about it um, when you talked about um, the, uh, the the far, far better thing that I've done, right? Um, the, um, uh, from, I'm sorry, uh, Tale of Two Cities. Um, yeah, Sidney Carton. I'm sorry, the name escaped me there for a second. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, that's a perfect example of sort of sacrificial living, right? And so that that seems to typify the, the examples you collect in that third section of the book seem to typify um, this, uh, or seem to be connected by this idea of sacrificial living is the righteous life, right? Um, serving others, that sort of thing, right? Uh, and is there another example from that aspect of Dickens and the Gospel that um, sort of stands out to you that you think is notable? What I did here was I, I sort of trace a number of, of uh, stories. Um, a, a number of the books have entries in all three sections. So I sort of follow the stories through to their conclusions. Yeah. And, and in the end, you get a lot of examples of the righteous life. Uh, Sidney Carton is one. Um, I, get, I use Little Dorrit again. And I use uh, A Christmas Carol a couple of times in here. Um, the Cratchit family, for example, when Scrooge sees them at their Christmas dinner and they're, um, they're happy, they're contented, even though they have very little, uh, they make the most of it, they love each other, and, um, and they, you know, they talk about faith, they... They have all the uh, the virtues that uh, Dickens would hold up as as good examples for us, and so they are uh, a prime example of of the righteous life. And Scrooge himself becomes one after his own redemption. When we see him at the end of the book, you know, as good a master and as good a man as the good old city ever knew, or however the passage goes, uh, and and uh, so. We don't, in a lot of Dickens' work, and, and it's, 
it's really a nice thing to see. You you don't just necessarily see, and they lived happily ever after. You get little glimpses of people, you know, after redemption or after, you know, after the sinners have received redemption or the good people have been rewarded or, or whatever, whatever they, they pass through in the book, you see them living the kind of lives that are a blessing to everybody around them, that, that, keep them happy and contented that uh, are the kind of lives that Dickens would argue that God wants us to live. And I'm really glad you brought up Scrooge because that's something I wanted to touch on um, on this conversation. My uh, friend and my pastor, Rob Osborne, uh, shout out to Rob, um, he very often makes this point about our, our culture today and how we're so, I mean, we tend to reduce each other to the worst thing that we've ever done, kind of, and that's sort of all we can be, right, in, in our minds. And and we we don't. I mean, I think on an intellectual level, we we appreciate the idea of redemption, but we don't live like we believe it's possible, right? And, and so, and he points out that when um, we say the words, we call somebody a Scrooge, um, for example, we just assume we mean the the pre-redemption Scrooge, right? We don't, but really, I mean, we could just as easily be someone who is a, the best person in town, right? Um, and if we think about it from the other end of that story. And so I think that that's just like one example of, I mean, that's a, a particularly powerful story. And as I was reading this again, um, the other night, I was, I was tearing up again, knowing, I mean, how many times have we all seen versions of a Christmas Carol? And I'm sitting there tearing up as I, as I sort of read that passage, because it's just so beautiful as a, as a depiction of what you're talking about here right and, and so and and yeah i think that that is a, a very inspirational thing that we can learn from right i think that we're, we're okay i think very often we're okay as a culture with the old testament idea of punishment right um and we would almost prefer that uh over the idea that someone we don't like can actually change <laughs> and, and become yeah. good <laughs> and, and dickens accuses us i think or his works accuse us a little bit for that mindset mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what makes him such a timely author right now. I mean, authors authors go in and out of fashion, but I think the great ones are, we, we keep coming back to them again and again because they have so much to teach us. And I think Dickens is an author really well suited to this particular moment because he dares to believe that redemption is possible. He dares to put it right out there and to challenge us to believe it and to show show us people changing. You know, that's a great point your pastor made about about pre-redemption Scrooge and how, you know, he's the one that sticks in our minds. And and um it's it's understandable because pre-redemption Scrooge is such a memorable character. Yeah. And the way he's introduced is unforgettable, you know, uh, grasping, wrenching, squeak, old sinner, you know, how, however it goes. And uh, I wish I had that off by heart because it's really good. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, but, but where, where you got to give Dickens credit and where you just got to say, wow, that's amazing, is that after Scrooge changes, I mean, he doesn't just become, you know, uh, a, pious goody goody you know walking around patting little children on the head i mean he's just as memorable he's dancing around the house he's yelling out the window for people to go buy him a turkey he's he's doing all this funny stuff and and you just you you can't help laughing and it's so good and so uh he dare dickens dares to believe that we can 
we can not just be, you know, a really convincing villain, but we can also change into a really, really convincing good person. And probably the only reason we, we don't, that that version of Scrooge doesn't uh, stick in our minds as much as we don't get to spend as much time with it. With That's him. true. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, it's so, so I really do think that Dickens is so good for us right now because uh, what, as we were, as we were saying, you know, um, it's a time when, when people are really just dealing with sin and the, the enormity of it, the monstrousness of it. And to the point where it seems to overwhelm everything else. And if you've ever, ever sinned in your life, well, that's it for you. You know, you can't think. And, and I, I don't, I don't totally condemn these people. I, I understand where the cry for justice comes from. I mean, you look at some of at, at some of the stories from the Me Too movement, whatever, and they're real. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are stories about real people doing hideous, shocking, shameful things to other people. And it's wrong and it's gone unpunished for so long. And it's like, no wonder people are feeling vengeful. But when you grapple with sin, when you have all this sin out in front of you, out from under the rug, here, here in real life, in front of our faces, then it's like, okay, now what? What are you going to do with it? How are you going to face it? How are you going to handle this? Because there has to be a way. Because some people never get justice. Some people go unpunished in this life. And then um, it, what, what do you do? Do you go on a never-ending quest for revenge? <laughs> I yeah. mean, at, at a certain point, you have to say, this is too big for us measly humans to deal with yeah we have there has to be a way out there has to be a way through we need help here and and this is where um christ comes in who who paid the penalty for sin and we have to believe that if if we're going to get through this at all if we have to believe that um just as justice is is um, a principle, so is mercy, mm -hmm. and that redemption can be achieved. And we have to long for that just as much as we long for justice, or we let ourselves be turned into something vengeful and monstrous and inhuman in our own right. So this is where Dickens helps us, is, is what it all comes down to with regard to this book. Um, he has a message of redemption. He's a great believer that sin exists, that it, it's real, that it's monstrous, all the things we've been saying. But he points to a way out. Yeah. And so this is one reason why I think we desperately need to be reading him right now. Yeah. And I think he he kind of in equal portions understands that like personal sin and social sin are both real and and uh, and both worth paying attention to. And, and we tend to in churches at least go one way or the other. Right. And, and, uh, and I think that that's a, uh, uh, a lesson that we can take out of Dickens. And when you were talking about sort of these cycles of retribution, um, I will never remember which, uh, passage it was in, but there's a passage in here about a kind of this, uh, generational, uh, cycle of retribution in, in one of the stories. Uh, I can't remember which one it is, which one is it? I think it was a tale of two cities. Oh, that's right. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you sort of talked about that, yeah, um, and yes, yeah, so it's a, another perfect example, right? Um, mm -hmm. So um, I want to let you kind of conclude in a minute about 
like any last thoughts that you have or anything last last thing you want to say about Dickens. Um, I do want to say like one thing. I want to talk about the new David Copperfield movie again one more time um, because I think it's really interesting. First of all, it was a lovely movie. I thought it was um, exciting and I thought it was um, funny and I thought it was very moving um, and very inspiring. I thought it was great. Um, it's it's all this really very almost postmodern um, aesthetic to it. And there's colorblind casting and it just makes it kind of vibrant and really cool. Um, and I, I loved it. I am like, after reading your book and I saw the movie a couple of months ago. And like I said, when, it, when the theaters first opened and, um, and when reading your book though, I'm actually sort of wondering if I, I don't recall like any kind of sense that this was, a, uh, a a religious. I didn't I didn't pick up religious themes uh, while watching that movie. Um, and so, reading your book, though, you do kind of you point out the religious themes from David Copperfield uh, in, in in several passages here. And it seems to me that that movie has. Repl- and I'm not complaining. This isn't necessarily a complaint about the movie because, I, I, like I said, I loved it. But it's replaced kind of like religion, a Christian. Um, ideas of justice and redemption with a much more kind of liberal multicultural one almost. And so um, I, I, uh, I don't, I'm having not seen it, it's not a fair question <laughs> to even pose to you, but it's just me thinking out loud. And if any uh, listener has seen the movie, I, I'd love your opinions about whether um, sort of liberalism has kind of just uh, in some ways, altered the the redemption the type of redemption that we see in that story and so i think it's maybe a good essay for somebody to write down the road maybe me i don't know um absolutely longing to see the movie and i haven't had a chance to go yet and it's just i want so badly to see it It, it's it's getting a digital release next month and so i will finally be able to see it and i just can't wait but yes i will i will look for what you're talking about then and and, uh if i see it too and and like i said i am not even complaining about the movie i think it's flawless i i loved it i every minute of it i loved it and so it was great um and so all right so um gina any last thoughts uh, for the listeners about Dickens? uh last pitch you want to make a last uh, thing that you want to kind of uh, make sure you talk about well, I can I can only recommend that um, if anybody is feeling daunted by Dickens, you know, totally understandable. But I do say, you know, give him a try. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's so good. Um, if if you're willing to put in the, the work, and a, a lot of writers ask you to put in some work, you know, it, and then there's room for all kinds. There's room for fun stuff too. I don't I don't say anything against that. But uh, if if you uh, can can put in the time and the effort and thought um, you will get so many rewards from reading him. I mean, just the humor and uh, the poignancy and the wonderful images and words that will stick in your mind and, and the characters that are unforgettable, just so many good things. And, but also underlying all that, these redemptive narratives that, that we've been talking about. He's, he's not someone I think who who go, comes out and proposes a lot of concrete solutions about what we should be doing. Um, people who look for that in him sort of look in vain. He, he doesn't really do that, but it, he is someone who who looks at personal sin and social sin, as you say. Who, who sort of you know sees that big picture, who takes it all in, but just asks us to consider who we are in our own place in the world, 
however big or small our own sphere is, and asks us to use it for good, to to live as, as if we've been redeemed and are trying to bring that redemption to those around us. And so, you know, uh, do give them a try. Uh, pick up the book. And uh, I, I've, I've uh, as we were saying, I've sort of um, put him in here in some what you might call bite-sized pieces that are easy to start with. And then uh, if, if, you, if you do that, if you read it, then... Um, you know, maybe take one of the stories you particularly liked and look up that Dickens book and go from there. Yeah. And I was just going to say, if you weren't going to pitch it, I was going to pitch it for you. Because uh, <laughs> I think uh, as an introduction, I think it's a really great book. Um, and even for someone like me who like is professionally a reader of literature, right? But um, I don't necessarily, because of the nature of the my job, have time to read, you know, Great Expectations or, or Bleak House, right? Um, but the excerpts are very moving for me. And, I, and it was a really great opportunity to dive into these stories that really I have many of them absorbed just through being alive in, in Western culture uh, because Dickens has been so adapted for so long. I mean, we kind of know these stories if we've not read them. And so, but reading them, like there are these little just sparks of wisdom and, and you contextualize it really well for a, a Christian reader who wants to have a, a, you know, a faith experience through this literature. I think it's a, it's really, really great. So thank you for doing this. Thank you. And and the book you can buy wherever you buy books. I'm pretty sure it's on Amazon. And and uh, if you go to the Plow website, that's P L O U G H. Um, if you if you're unaware, um, you can uh, find the book through them. And uh, and uh, I like I said, I highly recommend it. I thank Plow for making this connection. And I thank you, Gina D'Alfonso, for not only editing the book, for taking an hour and uh, and speaking with me about it. I really really enjoyed our conversation. Um, those of you who are listening, uh, my name is Danny Anderson. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. At, at Danny P. Anderson. And, uh, and oh, Gina, you're on Twitter as well. Do you want to kind of give your contact information? Yes, I am. Uh, my handle is just my name, uh, at G-I-N-A-D-A-L-F-O-N-Z-O. Okay. And if they want to find your work, they can uh, they can link to it there. Um, yeah. Thank you, Gina. Um, thank you list for listening. If you have any uh, thoughts, be sure to contact the show. You can contact me either on Twitter. Um, we have a Facebook page and all that kind of stuff. Uh, join the conversation. Buy the book uh, and subscribe to Plow. Have a great day, everybody. And you're